Hello there, and welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. I hope you enjoy this extract from one of my favourite episodes in the series with Hosier. To hear the full hour-long interview and a little bit more, and more deep dive chats with hundreds of the greatest Irish people and musicians ever to have left our shores, along with our other series, Irishman in America, Irishman Inside Basketball, and Irishman Behind Bars, and a few extra benefits, head over to Premium Irishman Abroad over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. I tell you, it'll only take a minute for you to sign up and for less than a five or a month, you'll gain access to absolutely everything we've ever made. That's hundreds of episodes. You'll also walk around with a spring in your step, knowing that you helped this series survive and grow through these difficult times. Our chosen charity partner, as always, is Jigsaw.ie. Let me tell you, Jigsaw are an incredible youth mental health charity that works to provide young people back in Ireland with the mental health skills they will need to survive in life. We all know how hard it is to be young, and since the pandemic, the challenges have grown. They've seen a 400% jump in demand for their services, for their one-on-ones, for their group services. The phone line, the webinars, the website are under incredible strain. Jigsaw are making a huge difference nonetheless. Why not take two minutes to visit the website and see if they can help you or someone in your life? Or maybe through a donation, you could help them. That's jigsaw.ie, the chosen charity partner of an Irishman abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and learn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Andrew Hosier-Byrne. Thank you so much for doing Irishman Abroad. Ah, pleasure. We are sitting in your hotel here in Shepherd's Bush. Yeah. And when I meet you in the lobby, you are obviously extremely tired. Maybe <laughs> you could describe to the listener right now what you're coming off the back of. Like, what? where have you been in the last, say, three weeks? Three weeks. Um, three weeks we went from Australia. I had a leg in Australia about two weeks long. And then uh, we went from, uh, from L.A. to Australia. Back to LA for about two days, and then to New York for two days for a kind of promo, and uh, a VH1 show, and then Dublin for uh, for about two days, and then London for now, which is the last four four days or so. But here we're doing kind of promo and rehearsals for upcoming uh, the next month. We'll have a lot of things with the BBC and and things like that. So just yeah, and that's so been the case for like a couple of years now. Yeah, just just about definitely. It's it kind of the last year, especially, has maybe been more busy. But it's nearly coming up on two years on the, on the road. Yeah, and certainly you know when it starts off, kind of in drips and drabs, and then popping around Europe. But definitely things have yeah 
And as you get closer towards the end of, of your touring cycle, I guess things get busier because everybody needs that piece that mm-hmm. done. Get know? it all done before yeah. the end of yeah. school term. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when you go back to Ireland, I believe you stay with your mom and dad. You don't own a place, have a place or anything. There. Not at the moment, no. So it's all out of a suitcase. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much last two years out of a suitcase. I think... It just it wasn't viable for me to look into a place, and I used to. I kind of moved in and out of town as I was finishing the album. I kind of would rent short term here and there, and, and uh, but it just it just doesn't make sense. It just mm. I'd be rent, you know renting a place I'd never see or yeah yeah. So yeah, I just kind of visit family. It's and it's only ever a day or two days at a time. So yeah. Well, when I'm looking up and doing the bit of reading that I could on you, the first thing that strikes me is that home that you go back to, mm-hmm. that family that raised you uh, your parents f- come from such kind of odd backgrounds in terms of the the typical irish family mm-hmm. i mean they're both artists essentially mm-hmm. and they give you the opportunity to march to the beat of your own drum mm-hmm. and be who you want to be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can you tell us something about that upbringing and maybe your first memory of them giving you this freedom yeah um it's a t- it's a funny one as it wasn't um i wasn't raised in in what you would call like an arty like it wasn't like an arts and crafts type family you know that kind of way but at the same time my mom definitely she was you know she was always an artist and she did a lot of projects along the way she just could turn her hand to a lot of things from like making and designing silk scarves to like making kind of like i think at one stage like clocks and then paintings and always everything she kind of turned her hand to it kind of definitely you know, I don't know. She could it. do. She could do, yeah. And it really, you know, I don't, I don't know. It was great in, in in that regard. My dad was a drummer when he was a young man, and uh, he would have played a lot, like in a lot of live scenes. And you know, it would have, you know, before they had children, you know, they would have been able to. I think my mom was a had a cafe, and she was like a, a chef. So they kind of were able to support themselves as as young as young professionals in, in that regard. And then kids came along, and so I suppose when uh, when children came along, then my my dad. Uh, he he worked worked in a kind of a nine to five type type thing. So, so nine to yeah, you see when you say drummer, I mean I immediately think like, what kind of money is he pulling down yeah. drumming yeah. in Ireland at that time? I mean it's, it's such a yeah like I mean my dad had a weird uh, job too. He's a horse trainer, but right, you immediately right. associate vast money with it. There wasn't yeah yeah yeah. But yeah. drumming you. Like, wh- how is he supporting the family on drums? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, th- I suppose this is this is why he would have made the decision soon after the kids came along to kind of do more of a nine to five. He actually, it was this was before IT was coming in, like before banking and stuff and insurance was done through computers. And I think, in some way, I think he he did it like some kind of a test to to show that he had a, he had brain for computers that were okay. these new type of computers that were coming in. Right. And so he ended up going into IT and doing night classes to do it to do his his you know just in that kind of way that your parents somehow grafted through yeah, and don't yeah, know yeah. how they did it you know exactly I mean? yeah just doing night classes to get a get a kind of masters and, and stuff in, in whatever computer technology for this and, and then you know supported us all the way along until until unfortunately he, he got ill and you know, had to had to retire like yeah. i'm always fascinated that like my own dad made sacrifices Mm-hmm. For four kids, mm-hmm. I mean, your dad sacrificed his creative life yeah. for you guys. Yeah. Was there ever that sense in the house that well, this was my former life, and God, I would have loved to have stuck with it, but not everybody gets blessed with that. Yeah, I, th- I think n- no, and amazingly not. I'd have to admire 
your parents for like kind of not having regrets in in, mm. in having children and and putting aside their life before and i that's something that still amazes me and i think it's only something that you kind of become more aware of as you get older and you kind of look at your parents in a new in a new kind of way you know you 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 kind of decry their existence during your teen years <laughs> you arrive <laughs> you arrive as a, as a young adult and you're like how the fuck did you do that you know what i mean yeah yeah and like well, you know why did you do that you know for for me like you know what is the quote uh at 13 years old, I couldn't get over how dumb my parents were. And by the time I was 25, I couldn't get over how much they'd learned in the interim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is a bizarre one that uh, the thought of you, say, giving up your thing yeah. for for children. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of uh, it's something that this modern generation kind of feels a bit like it's, it's certainly a gripe mm-hmm. that yeah. you hear now yeah. is. Like and then I had to give all that up yeah, for yeah, the yeah. for yeah. the kids. But your parents put you on this path because my wife's a Montessori teacher, and you know when she identified you went to Jared's, mm-hmm. it's a you know a Montessori. It's linked to the Montessori movement. Is that right. correct? Do you do you remember going to Montessori or that child-led learning? Yeah, I um I was in Montessori. I, I would definitely not in St. Jared's, but I think I was in a like a local. Montessori. I do remember Montessori very well. Really? Um, yeah, it was like a, it was a Montessori in in, in uh, Delgany. That was fun. And then I ended up going to Delgany National School nearby. I'm, I'm trying to think. I know because it is like it, if you ask me to think about my my play school, essentially yeah. that those years when <laughs> you're going way back. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I just know from knowing about the method about how you know the empowerment of the child to do what he yeah. wants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that seems to be there for you yeah. early early true, on true and it absolutely and I, I do think about this often is that i would be one of the first generations where kids were treated in a, in a way that they were told that they were special and mm. that's not something my parents generation were afforded and i'm sure even and there's a few years between us i don't maybe less so as well yourself yeah you know, but definitely i was i don't think this is not a generation previous that that has had the amount of opportunities that mine has or certainly that i, I can say that i that i had at least and having options and also having options to not try and work towards a kind of a nine to five and mm. quick into a job and that was i always find that with my parents generation that you didn't have a choice you didn't have a choice you just you went straight from from home to work and you, you found your place and you know, and that was that and that was that yeah you found your place i can't wrap my head around the story maybe you can clear this up because it was what i read is you are spotted by a record label mm-hmm. doing a Nina Simone cover mm-hmm. in your school. Yeah, yeah. First of all, what is a record label guy doing yeah. at a school talent show? Yeah. And second of all, can you tell us anything about what Nina Simone song you were covering mm-hmm. and what was the sequence of events? Yeah. It was a weird it was a weird time. This was like this was years like the, I remember it was it was a buzzy old time but it was years and years until I actually released anything. And it was it led to, you know, working with a few producers and, and stuff like that. I suppose I'll give you I'll give you the timeline of events. I think I was in sixth year doing the final year and I, I would have one of the few things I was very good at at school, I suppose, or, and something that the school was fantastic was they had a few kind of talent shows every year or like, you know, t- t- opportunities where students could get up and just do a piece of music or sing a song or something like that, which was great because it gives you an, an, an opportunity to not only to kind of showcase what you're practicing, but also gives you reason to practice and I think then in, I wasn't but this this wasn't quite it was actually a, like a transition year students event 
like as their kind of transition year project, they were putting on a, an event for charity, which was essentially right. a talent show. Got it. And managed to get Louis Walsh to come. <laughs> and uh, oh, through yeah, it's and Louis. I, it's yeah, Lou, oh I know, right? God. And again, I you know, I was very, I, I can't believe how privileged I was <laughs> that this was because we, you know, like I, it just it was uh, the opportunities that actually going to that school afforded me uh, now unthinkable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's where my manager saw me. So my manager, my now manager, had children in the school, and I was in in their class. And so they would have seen me from a young kid singing every now and then, and then eventually, sure, kind of. And so she always kind of had had an eye on me, and and I suppose maybe you know saw something there. And then through her, she's she's good friends, I think, with, with 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 Louis Walsh, and you know he came along and said, yeah, absolutely, yeah, it's a you know it's a, it's a fun event for charity, or whatever. I'll come along and be the judge in this thing. And then this is like very very early days, and I went up and I sang, just me and like an electric guitar. It's actually originally a BG song, uh, "To Love Somebody," and it was written for Otis Redding, would you believe? Before, and then Otis Redding passed away, so the, the Bee Gees recorded it. And uh, Nina Simone, I I hadn't heard that version, like Nina Simone's version of it, which I loved, and I just went up there and sang it. And that kind of like I remember like Louis kind of being very very supportive and going, "Oh wow, that's, that's great and that's that's amazing and whatever." and wanted me to meet somebody in Universal Ireland. And then I met himself, and and I was lucky enough then to kind of, through that, they wanted to just kind of see what music I had been writing myself. And that year I performed on like the Imro stage then at Oxygen, which for me was this kind of terrifying event because I had this music that I had been writing since I was 16 and never played to anybody. And then I was kind of asked, would you get up on stage at, at the Imro? At the biggest festival yeah, yeah. Ireland had to offer. Yeah, and, and do the Imro, you know, the, whatever, it's like the new act stage or whatever. And I wasn't a member of Imro. And then also go for a meeting with Mark Crossingham in, in Universal Ireland, which for me, you know, as this, this Leaving Cert student, I was kind of more worried about my Leaving Cert. And I was just like, you know, freaking out. And, but also I had never shared any of, of any of my music with anybody, never played it to anybody. What was that music like? Like, uh, does it resemble anything that we're hearing now? Yeah, some of it maybe, some of it would, the kind of more, it, a lot of it was kind of like folk, like you could, like folk blues. Hmm. Or, or what you, I suppose you could describe as like folk pop. Or like, are you embarrassed when you look back on oh it? I totally, yeah. I, I, I <laughs> look upon it with worst scorn. Like, I, and I think like anybody would, you know. It's yeah, like first attempts. That's what they're about. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's like you're opening up your diary again, and like, yeah. like Jesus, what? Is there any footage person? of this to be found? There probably is, and there's, I, I don't even want to say that there's demos <laughs> of it because I just don't. You know, I'd, I'd rather it never surfaces, and like. I'd love if it didn't, <laughs> but like they were just, they were just, they were very, it's juvenilia, you know what I mean? It's sure. you kind of, you look at it with, it was naively written and whatever else. It was kind of like, I suppose, like a f- where f- maybe like something between folk blues and kind of soul pop or something was. So it was very mishmash of stuff and I didn't know how to f- produce a sound. All of it was just me and a guitar. Anyway, that, that, that kind of came about and then I went to, this was coming towards the end of my school year, the next year in college. I managed somehow, illiterate as I am, to get a place in Trinity College, like musically illiterate. I managed to get a place in Trinity College, which was my first choice. And I knew in my heart of hearts that I kind of wanted to make, you know, pop music or not pop music, but I, I use the word pop music in, in what, you know, as in popular music as opposed to classical contemporary or something mm-hmm. that would, or study kind of composition or something. I wanted to make music for today I wanted to be a song songwriter and uh, 
So I kind of went into college burying that that feeling, going, I can't do four years of this, and also struggled very hard because I was theory was never my strong suit. I just and there's a ton of that if yeah. you go to study music in Trinity. Yeah, those yeah. first couple of weeks. I mean, I love having people on the show mm-hmm. who talk about how. It just wasn't for me. I mean, I even look at my own college thing and the struggle of it, just going, this is nowhere near who I am or what I want to do. Yeah. Tell us about your struggle. Because you realize it like early doors, right? Yeah, I, w- yeah, I definitely would have, yeah. And I, I don't know how. I think the only way I got in must have been... Louis the Walsh. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, making, making phone calls, phone strings. Um, I had done entrance exams for three other music colleges that same week, and so I was just in the my, zone. My head was switched on to exactly what I needed to, to, you know. There I was, probably writing out chord charts and like trying to, trying to pretend to myself like I knew anything about theory, and I managed to, to you know, to get in whatever. It was the first few weeks. Yeah, I was I was fine with aural and keyboard, so playing things and singing back. But everything else was just absolute, you know. Like I just I just knew I would be struggling through. So Universal Ireland set us up with uh, at the same time. I think it was October of that year of my first year of college. They were like, we want you to do a demo. We want you to demo this song, the cover that you had did of the Nina Simone song. We have some studio time for you down in Offaly. I think it's uh, called something Nutshed Studios or something like that. And now Breslin, Brezzy uh, of the Blizzards, is at this point just moving into kind of production. And he's kind of, this is before his, his, his solo project, this is 2009. And so he's, he's kind of keen on, on kind of working as a producer for, for some things. And so he, he was going to be the producer of this, of this demo. So then that led to me, like, kind of, and it, like, this is, I'm just a f- kid, and like, still in first year in college. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I remember kind of going now, like, to, to meet Brezzy, who, you know, is an, is an Irish celebrity and stuff, at, at like, at, in a hotel somewhere, and just to have a chat and stuff. And it's a weird old time, actually, thinking back. And then eventually, but the, the thing was, this mixed with the schedule for these demos conflicted with an exam timetable for the Christmas exams of the first year of college and I very much decided that I would do the demos rather than sit around and do the exams. Did you talk about that with your parents? I did, yeah. They knew that I was uh, that's what I was doing. They I think we they tried to see if there was any way that the two, you know, trying to pressure me trying to get, make the both of them work, but I wasn't all that eager in making the two of them work to be honest, like looking back I was I was fine with missing the exams. And um but I, I couldn't. It, it just it was the way it was. I was going to miss that exam if I if I stayed in the weekend. And did so it. tell me, do you have in your head now that you've met Brezzy and you've got this studio time and Universal, huge label, are interested? Mm-hmm. You must have in your head a vision mm-hmm. for this working. N- I at this time, no. Like I, I I mean my demos were very much what, and I actually had never. It's before I discovered Jeff Buckley, but I could describe it as kind of a, like a just an electric guitar, kind of like a electric kind of Motown sounding kind of mm-hmm. gentle electric guitar and just voice. So I didn't know anything about arrangement and I didn't know anything about how you I knew maybe what I wanted to f- what it to feel like, but I didn't know what it was. I, I didn't know how to articulate that. And it took me years and such that nothing really came of, of this demo with Niall. I think it was kind of. It was, you know, it was an interesting learning experience. It was a good learning experience, and I got on great with with Nal Breslin, and he's he is a really he's a really lovely lad, and and I w- worked with him subsequently again, and I worked with a lot of a few producers then, but it was around that time after that I made the decision that I would, having missed those exams, 
probably not pass the year and would have to repeat the first year. And I looked into maybe going off the books for a year and seeing if I could concentrate on, on singers, like, you know, songwriting and come back. But as a first year, you're not afforded that. You kind of, you, you're not afforded what they call going off the books. So I decided to leave and had to talk to my parents about that and went, look, look this is what I really want to do. And four years of this, I will be unemployable after four and or five heartbroken. years. And heartbroken. And yeah, and no closer to what I want to do. Yeah, and a bit heartbroken, exactly. So they supported that. But it was a good three or four years. Yeah. The idea of leaving college after four years of misery is mm-hmm. not what the design is. Y- if yeah. anything, you get a qualification that you may not use but you're a happy person who discovers and yeah. goes into things they might... Your parents must have understood how unhappy you were. Yeah, and I, I can't... Although I cannot say I was unhappy. Like, I, I wasn't suffering in college. I was having a great time. What like was, I was bringing you happiness? I suppose meeting new friends and kind of... I was one of those, like, I went straight in. I think I was class rep and just, you know, I just enjoyed talking to people and just meeting new people and doing little things, but also singing... Singing and stuff like all the you know choirs, the and choirs. Stuff. like it just uh, probably that kid who, who could excel forever doing extracurricular activities, justify being in the college for many many years, and actually never do anything academically yeah, successful. Tons of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could have been that that guy. And in fact, after I left college, I still hung about the, the college, like taking part in like choir events and orchestra events. Which, if you ever see me doing something with Trinity Orchestra. If there's some stuff online of me doing it, doing Pink Floyd and stuff, that's after I left left the college, you know, but I was still very much involved in, in the orchestra and just hanging out with all the guys and having fun and, and lending my voice to it. But I kind of knew that there would be four years of, of me struggling academically, enjoying it, but really it would be fruitless and I would be four years further away from the skills that I needed to actually. Mm. And the more times that I, I got into studio with producers, I learned a lot, a lot of great, great producers, but I... I always felt that there was something that I, I wanted to do myself and there was something that I wanted to articulate and I, I didn't know how to. And I, I, I figured uh, I didn't know how I was going to learn that. But it was three, a lot of very slow years. Yeah, I, from, I want to hear about this because yeah. my understanding and uh, like you've got to understand, uh, Andrew, there's, there's a myth growing around you and of this skyrocket that is your career. And it fascinates me, me for you. You to hear you say that there was three very slow years there, mm-hmm. because for a lot of people listening to this, mm-hmm. they're in those three years. Yeah, they may be listening to this, going, "Well, maybe this guy's got some of the answers." Mm-hmm. Yeah, that three years, from what I understand, is you on the open mic circuit, which, you know, for people that don't know, is a is a very bustling circuit in in Dublin, and it's it's competitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is what is that three years for you? There was a bit of open micing. There was definitely a little bit of that. I wasn't driving at the times, and I wasn't. I couldn't afford to live in in Dublin. Eventually, actually, what happened was I had a publishing deal. Eventually, which was great. And I what does that mean? Town. It's kind of like the rights to the music would be dealt with by a publisher who would, who kind of. It's not quite a record deal. It's just about the actual the intellectual property. Right, and, and so they're not going to make CDs. No. But they'll pay you for the work. Exactly, you would get, you would get an advance. And I see. That would be an investment as well too on their part. And this is early days, I haven't released anything, but thankfully I, you know, somebody kind of saw something in me. And then I, I, I took that money as all young men would and I kind of went, I was like, boom, straight, I'm going to move into town. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, live with my old college friends for, for a bit. And 
that was a great experience, great learning experience, but also you learn just what ex- you won't achieve from living in a city and trying to distract yourself with, with the fun you can have there and thinking you're getting work done. And once the money was kind of starting to, to run out, I kind of just thought like, and I was, you know, trying to fill my days with, with, with meaningful work, and but also complaints in the first week, like threats of being kicked out of the place from neighbors being like, this lad's playing music, <laughs> like, and I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> and so eventually I kind of moved back home, back to Wicklow, and I think with everything, I never really liked showing my hand with, with the work. I was never happy with the work until I was happy with the work. And I didn't know when that was going to be, and I didn't know how that was going to happen. So it wasn't until I kind of just sat down and started producing some of the demos myself and just not having a clue what I was doing just a microphone you know a laptop and a MIDI keyboard and just started just started fiddling around with ideas and trying to capture the kind of atmosphere and the sound of it um, and tell me this because uh, you know I'm to talk to James Vincent McMurrow next week mm-hmm. and I found like looking into both of you there is this constant feeling among like singer songwriters that I can create a thing I can write a thing but then when I take it someplace to record it mm-hmm. I'm going to have to compromise a certain amount of it yeah, yeah your decision to go right well you know what Brez is a nice guy and all these people that I've worked with are great mm-hmm. but maybe me sitting alone in my attic m- might get it closer to what will make me happy. Yeah. Is that correct? As- essentially, yeah. I think I think I think eventually I just I landed on that that and in the same way with working with a producer or working with anybody, you you know, a meeting of minds over over something you there is some amount that you that you let go of and to, mm. you know, for the for the for the coming of another mind, you know what I mean? And and sure and their vision has to meet yours. Has vision. to meet yours, yeah. And I and I think maybe it was some some kind of control freak thing or maybe it was something that I just I couldn't land on feeling entirely happy with or always asking myself what if or what what you know what if I'd explored these routes or whatever. And eventually, you know, not a lot going on. I was, you know, I I just decided that, you know, I would have to I would have to, you know, I just exa- as you said, I just decided, you know, fuck it, I'll just sit sit in the attic and uh, see what comes out of it and and throw my hand at actually seeing what it would sound like if I was to put the bare bones of the song down and actually follow through and produce and arrange the rest of it. The attic gets mentioned an awful lot. It does. Can you tell us about this attic? And is it what we imagine attics to be? Or did your dad actually have a drumming studio upstairs with a decent bit of soundproofing? There was uh, actually no soundproofing, sadly. But it, it was a, it's a good it's a good sized space. As the house is all the house is actually like a bungalow. It's on one level. But the attic then is 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 large by that by by virtue of that I suppose so there's a bit of space there and it's where all like the like a lot of my dad's drums would be, and he over the last few years had been kind of looking into doing kind of sound engineering and stuff. So there was some recording equipment. It started there was like a little little eight track recorder or something like that, and I did it my first demos trying trying on that on a little um like an eight track digital recorder or something like that, and then. Eventually, then I, I got a laptop and just started working on that first on Cubase and then then on Logic. So it was very kind of just rough and ready type stuff. But I, I was just throwing stuff at a wall and, and trying to you know no ability of mixing or anything like that. And then I think I, I I was in the middle of a of a project with the label who were developing me at the time, Ruby Works, who I'm, who I'm signed to, an Irish label. 
and we were kind of in the middle of, of, of a project or we were had been working on something and, and but I had these these demos and I just said, you know, have a listen to these. I'd love to look into doing this as well too. I'd love to look into developing this and, and they were like, Wow, cool. Uh, so they they loved them immediately. They they liked them, yeah. They they lo- they liked them. And How surprised were you in that moment? Because l- like you say, you're holding your hand to your chest at this point, and maybe uh, there is. I know from my own creative perspective, when nobody's listening, mm-hmm. you're a lot freer. Mm-hmm. But then the idea of presenting it to someone, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you're kind of going, well, this is my gut instinct. Yeah, yeah. Will they agree? Yeah. Are you surprised, or are you going? Well, yeah, they are fucking good. I, I know they're good. I was, um, I don't know what I was. I was, I think I was excited, but I knew in my, in my kind of heart of hearts is that, that that was the route that I had to go and that I had tried everything. I had, I'd learned a lot and I'd, I'd done a lot with other people and stuff and like really, really great folks. But I, I just felt that I had no choice in myself than to do this and like, and to go this route and to explore and to follow the kind of root of this music. And also there it is. That's just the beginning. To hear almost 60 minutes more of this conversation and hundreds more full-length Irish Man Abroad episodes and shows, join us on patreon.com forward slash Irish Abroad. Help support the creation and continuation of this series for years to come. For less than a fiver a month, you'll gain access to all our episodes, shows, live events, and for a limited time only, everyone who signs up in the first two weeks of August will get my brand new stand-up comedy special, Notions 11, shot by my favourite director, Mike Donnelly, in Vicker Street in March 2020. That's hundreds of hours of entertainment, inspiration and laughter for less than the price of one of your fancy coffees. Over at patreon.com forward slash Abroad. I want to say thanks to my ultrasound producer, as always, Brian Connolly, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And finally, to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw. Jigsaw.ie are a youth mental health charity that is changing and saving lives across all communities back in Ireland. Now, more than ever, they could do with your support. Go to Jigsaw.ie to see their great work, get some help with the young people in your life, or maybe through a donation, you can help them.